Hey guys, welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. We're all about telling amazing stories of modern business, with tips on working better and living smarter. This week on the show, we look at lessons in business and life from a newly reopened food hall here in London. And then, if you could live and work from anywhere and keep the same salary, where would you go? This week, we're in New York to look at one company's big experiment in remote work. But first, I'm with Petra Barron, founder of the street food incubator and market Curb. Back in late April on the Courier Daily podcast, we spoke with Petra about the state of her business. At the time, Curb had recently closed its brand new Seven Dials market, just as it was about to reach profitability. Well, today the market has officially been reopened for one week. So I thought we'd catch up with Petra again to find out what she's learned. I think the whole world has moved from the abstract to the, oh shit, it's right in our face and getting really crunchy now time. I think it's really interesting because, you know, like March, April, May, all quite theoretical, quite kind of like distance, you know, being able to look at the whole issue, the whole business, the whole world from a distance and kind of have all your kind of expansive thoughts about it. And then it gets closer and you're like, hang on, we've got to actually confront this in real life now. And we're in the face. So if March, when we spoke, was like I said, in the bunkers, but kind of quite abstract, this is, you know, properly on the front line. And very real in relation to Seven Dials Market. How do you actually make a space that big, that central, that needy of lots of people coming through it all the time work in August in a pandemic? So it's pretty interesting. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, you guys wrote on your Instagram recently when you were announcing that you were reopening that, you know, it's been a maelstrom of navigating landlords, investors, creditors, new contracts, old contracts, and, you know, furloughing, obviously, and redundancy for some people. It's a total roller coaster for you guys and for a lot of businesses around the world. You know, as you said, when we talked to you last, it was still kind of theoretical. You didn't really know what was going to hit. But lo and behold, you guys have survived. What have you gone through in terms of just the brutal reality of, like, navigating all of those practicalities? Well, it's kind of complex because we're talking about sort of three different businesses in a way. So Curb is the main business, which is the markets and the traders. And then we've got the corporate catering side of the business, which is a whole other part of the business, which is large scale events for people like Facebook and Google and in the Natural History Museum and Billingsgate Market and stuff like that. And that's all kind of stopped. And then we've got the food hall, which we've reopened last weekend. And so across the board, we've had to deal with redundancies which has been really unpleasant and sad because, you know, everyone was doing great and no one's done anything wrong. But, you know, you still have to confront the reality of the fact you don't have the money coming in to support all of those people. Furlough is a really interesting and weird one in terms of people being on furlough, people being brought off furlough on and off, on and off. And and the whole kind of blurred line around, you know, what furlough means and 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 then also you know i think one of the biggest problems a lot of us are having is it's not just the pandemic it's not just the fear of the fear of the pandemic it's the reality of people going hang on a minute i actually prefer being at home i actually don't really want to go back to work and that's going to affect all of us right so you're dealing with all that kind of energy as well we originally said 
oh, we're not going to open probably not till January. And here we are in August opening. And I think we just got to a point with the landlords, but also with ourselves of like, let's just open. Let's just start. Like we're fed up of sitting around and kind of wondering. And we just want to go out there and have a go and be part of the people trying to make central London come back to life. For Seven Dials, when were you allowed to reopen? Because obviously a lot of restaurants have reopened. They've been open for quite some weeks. Were you guys allowed to open when the restaurants opened? Or as a food hall, did you have different guidelines? We would have been allowed. We would have been allowed, but that felt too early. And this is still kind of early, you know, August. I think, you know, September would probably be a more sensible month to open. But it's also like that's where we are that's what we're doing we don't expect august to be the biggest kind of boom in the year we just want to start you know we've got traders in there who want to get going again who are keen to get back in front of their customers who want to make the real burger for them rather than send out the meal kit you know people who want to come back out and eat the food as well i mean it's just like let's just do it and and then at least we're not dealing with abstracts anymore we're dealing with the issues as they come along and the kind of reality of it all and we can kind of apply it as soon as it happens any changes Let's talk about the traders because at Courier, we're keen to talk about, you know, how small businesses have fared. So you guys have tons of traders at Seven Dials. Have any gone under? I wouldn't say any have gone under. One business has split up and they've just stopped trading. So they haven't come back. We have made the decision not to reopen. So the food hall is two different areas. It's Banana Warehouse and Cucumber Alley. And Cucumber Alley was producers. And we made the decision because we were going to change it anyway to not reopen Cucumber Alley and just focus on Banana Warehouse. And in Banana Warehouse, we have had of 13, seven return. And there's different reasons for all of those. Like one of them is, you know, we we wanted to change one of the stalls into a bar. One of the traders was going to go into Cucumber Alley anyway. And a couple, it just wasn't working out. So yeah, we've got the Magnificent Seven in there doing their thing. Small food and drink companies have gone through hell in the past couple of months. A lot of them have closed around the world. Do you think that the pandemic has changed the fundamental nature of what it means to run a, I guess, number one, a food hall, and then number two, a, you know, be a trader and have a food stand? But as a food hall, I mean, you obviously have now capped the number of people that can come in. You have quite a lot of restrictions, as you should. Is that a ceiling of growth for you guys to, to grow? No, it's more just a kind of like, this is what we've got to do to survive right now. Like we have to put in place the measures that we have to put in, in order to be even viable, in order for people to even feel like they want to come in here. And we very much see this as like, right, this is what we're going to do for now. You're going to be met at the door. You're going to have your temperature checked in a really unobtrusive way you're going to be shown to your table you're going to be ordering your food from the table click and collect pink sanitation stations all over the place i mean our whole thing about that is making people feel safe in a really unobtrusive way whereby you know you can see there's somewhere to sanitize your hands wherever you look you can see that you know you don't have to leave your table if you don't want to you can see that you've been spaced out but equally you know and ultimately i think what will end up happening is people will do whatever they feel safe doing so if people want to get up from the table and go to the vendor and order their food that's fine too it's kind of like there's enough space for everybody to be able to manage it in the way that they can i think the main thing is is people turn up and they can see that we're on it 
without kind of like making it really, really militant. I mean, that's the big thing, right? Like food halls are supposed to be roaming, you know, for roaming and for like spontaneously turning up at and for feeling like you have agency inside that place. And the last thing we want to do is remove that agency because then you're removing the whole point of being in that place in the first place. The budget we've done is is not that we're going to be kind of drawing any kind of profit like we would have hoped at all. It's just like, let's just keep our head above water. Let's keep the thing alive. You know, there's a lot to be said for the energy of activation of getting a place open again. And then at least then you're going again and then you can make changes and make improvements and add things and whatever. But it's just restarting takes so much energy. And I think we're just all relieved to have just got off the starting blocks again. Yeah, with all the kind of the safety stuff you wrote on Instagram, you wanted to get the uh, the right balance between sordid and unawkward. Because it could be awkward, you know, getting up and not being able to get up and, you know, having some like school teacher say you need a hall pass to go get food. And it just, it, it goes against the kind of the whole fun social nature of just being in a food hall. I know. And it's just my ultimate fear. It's just like people turning up and feeling awkward and it being sterile. And it's a really weird, hard one, you know, to tread. It just is. And in this country, you know, everyone's doing it in the way that they see fit. There's no like national kind of like observance of, you know, like in Italy or whatever, where it's just, you know, my brother lives in Italy. It's all like everyone is on board with the same rules here. It's just totally up for, you know, negotiation. And and so it's a really difficult one to tread. But I think ultimately we have to put trust in the people that come there as well. I think it's really, really important that people come there and they're trusted to act the way that they need to act for them to be safe without being dictated to and mediated and, you know, made to feel like morons. Yeah. <laughs> Curb as a business, I guess, is just kind of, is that more interesting in the age of COVID, less confined building and more other areas of growth? Yeah, like in my head, it's just like there's all these three businesses, but like ultimately there's a restructuring that we are going to be doing, which is really, really exciting in terms of like making the three of them all really make sense under the same umbrella. We're looking to really figure out, and I think what's happening all over the place right now is like people are connecting with each other and joining forces in order to make the situation better and in order to give yourself the best chance possible of going forward. I think it's either like stay really small and really agile and really on the balls of your feet or connect with other people that can help you kind of continue and ride the wave. And, you know, in terms of the corporate catering side of the business, we're looking to do that. And we're looking to create more opportunities and, you know, partner basically in order to open up the doors more for that whole side of the business. Corporate catering, even though there's no real offices set up anymore, everybody's at home. No, but then, you know, you look at like, we're talking to a company at the moment who have football stadiums they've got contracts in football stadiums and so even if you are not able to go and cater inside the football stadium because the fans aren't allowed to be in the football stadiums in the same way they're talking about things like setting up fan parks outside the stadiums and so that is the real beauty of what we do is that we can literally be anywhere we could set up a trader in a kiosk you know somewhere like the o2 that would be permanent or semi-permanent or if we were you know in one of these big stadiums or something we could just set up a gazebo or roll in a food truck or whatever outside the place and really just you know be inside be outside be two meters by two meters 
you know, have 20 traders serving, you know, 3,000 people if that was necessary. You know, like there's so many different ways of doing it. Ultimately, you know, Curb started as an incubator. And I think that it's been really interesting kind of like observing how this is all kind of developed and, and how we've grown. Like we're nearly eight years old and we've got a lot of traders on our books now. And I think this has been a really interesting moment to kind of go back and look at what is the kind of value of looking after a trader community and nurturing a trader community and how can we best do that? And can we best do that with lots and lots of traders? Or do we need to really go back to the drawing board and look at how do we do that more impactfully, but maybe with less traders? I think there's a really great opportunity at the moment, like less so for scaling up and helping businesses scale up and get investment and everything like that. And more so finding the people with the ideas just in their heads and helping to germinate those ideas and bringing them out and giving them the support and building the platform and finding the connections and everything like that. And I think it's gonna be a really interesting moment for all sorts of, not just new businesses starting, but different kinds of businesses starting in the food industry. And that's what I'm ultimately really excited about and creating the spaces for them to get a start and then making introductions once they've got a start to like, okay, you could go on to this market or you could go on and do the corporate catering or you could get a space in the food hall, but like off you go kind of thing. I think we're going to see huge numbers of new businesses starting with different kinds of ideas than we've seen before, much more community focused ideas and much more paying it forward type of ideas. Yeah, that's what we're really excited about too, Courier. just the types of new companies that might be spawned from this sort of crisis. Because, you know, as the old saying goes, and I think this is what we talked about four months ago or whatever, you know, in every crisis is an opportunity. And back then you said you kind of predicted what sorts of businesses might come out of this. But I am wondering if that view has changed in terms of like what sorts of businesses might come out of this crisis. You know, we've seen the rise of vacuum-packed food delivery. We've seen the rise of kind of restaurants becoming grocery stores. What other pivots and adaptations do you think we might see from small food companies out of this crisis? Because just having a food stall and a food stand is probably just like the tip of the iceberg for a food business launching in 2021, right? Yeah, I think the future of all business is the benefit corporation model, the B Corp model, right? And whether you're officially a B Corp or whether you inhabit the, you know, the goals and the spirit and the mission of the B Corp, it's to exist for more than just profit. It's to exist for people and planet and profit. And I think people, you know, have had a moment to really stop and say to themselves, what the hell is the point of this whole charade called life? And what matters to me and what's important and clearly a lot of the stuff that has been considered important is looking less and less robust in terms of all the pomp and the kind of the image and the incredibly expensive interior to restaurants and all of that kind of thing. I think that's just diminished or at least has kind of reduced a lot to less people being interested in that kind of stuff and what's more interesting and what feels more sustainable in the true sense of the word is to build community and to create opportunities and to address your own privilege and to see how you can really contribute to the area that you live in and look around you and pay attention to more stuff than just London and big cities in particular. You know, they lend themselves to this sort of like 
kind of like railway line sort of funnel kind of thinking where you're just sort of like you're in your autopilot and you you go from your house to your work and you you don't really pay so much attention to everything that is going around you because you're so busy and you're so intent on you know your project I think this has given us a really amazing moment to look around us and look more laterally at what actually is life and what is really gonna you know just feel important I think you know levels of importance have really changed what would you say, though, to, you know, the owner of a burger company or the owner of a vegan falafel company? Because, you know, you could talk about B Corporation and community and all that stuff. And those are obviously incredibly important and great. But, you know, that won't put food on the table. No pun intended. If you were talking to somebody in the incubator, like, this is what I think I would do if I were in your shoes starting a food stall right now, you know, a small food brand. What would you say? What advice would you give? Just think about, you know, coming with more than just this is a great burger. It's not enough anymore. From a branding perspective to convince consumers or just for corporate governance? I mean, from your whole kind of like pit of your belly, like, why are you doing this? And I think what we've seen, you know, over the last 10 years of street food being this thing and this springboard to those you know glorious five restaurants that everybody or a lot of people have been after and we've seen loads of people coming along going right if I get my first trailer or food truck year one year two then I've got two year three maybe I've got three and then I've got an investor and then I can get those five restaurants I don't think it's really about that anymore I think it's about what are you bringing to the party what are you adding here who are you employing who are those burgers for where do those burgers come from and it's really hard because amongst all of this right is the customer has got a really unrealistic view of how much things cost and I think that's going to be the biggest thing that changes you know you asked me earlier about like how it's going to change the way people do business and stuff I think there's just going to be a reduction of restaurants because there's just going to be a reduction of restaurants because not all of them are going to survive there's going to be a reduction of people wanting to go out to restaurants all the time But I think there's going to be a reduction of people going out to restaurants also because I think a lot of restaurants, as we've seen already, are going to need to put their prices up to make it even worth them doing all that hard work, then making all of that stuff happen. And that is in turn going to make customers go out less. You know what I mean? It's going to be much more of a special occasion. You know, that's maybe a whole nother conversation, but that's like the real issue at hand, right, is the true cost of food. And that's something that is going to be, I think, really looked at by people. And street food's a difficult one because people come along and they're like, well, it's on the street. It can't be costing you that much to produce this. You can't be paying that much rent. You've got really low overhead. So why are you charging me £10 for a burger? And there's a lot of re-education that needs to happen around that. The business owner coming with that real level of intent of like, why do I exist as a business if it's not necessarily to have my dream five restaurants one day? What is it about the burger that is so important that people are going to care enough and that it's going to keep me excited enough? What opportunities am I creating through selling that burger for what kind of people? And if the fundamental end goal on the horizon of five restaurants no longer exists, what then is the end goal if I'm a a young food and drink business wanting to grow? Yeah, I think we have to reassess what growth means because growth has been, you know, really quite 80s for a long time, hasn't it? It's like grow, grow, grow without, you know, really kind of intention without impact growth without scale like what is scale actually and what is sustainable in the true sense of the word of like long lasting what is going to be around 
and what is going to withstand such things as pandemics like those are the questions that we really need to be asking ourselves you know like what is a really robust business and a really robust business is a business that people fiercely love and will support through thick and thin and that's team that's customers that's your product being something you're really proud of that you're charging adequately for and you belong in the area that you sell it even if you're on the go all the time like you make yourself at home where you are and people require you so it's no longer going into a, a lab and developing a cronut and expecting cues to form it it's more about like building a real business the old school community centric way right more roots than surface level yeah it's it really is and it's remembering that we are all part of an ecosystem and it's not about you know the sort of like heavy emphasis on individuated success because that is gonna expire in no time it's really how do you stitch in with everything around you with where you've chosen to make your life and how do you think of growth as not so much bigger but more impactful that was patrick barron from curb next up we're in new york rachel tipograph is the founder and ceo of an e-commerce marketing startup called micmac when Micmac launched back in 2015, it basically tried to reinvent infomercials for millennials with short 30-second videos. It's since pivoted to enterprise software, helping brands measure their e-com marketing. Micmac's been on an absolute tear recently. It's growing like crazy. Rachel says the company's grown over 70% since early March. They're also hiring like crazy, and they recently nabbed a $10 million Series A. But what's really interesting about Micmac is what it's planning to do with all of those new employees. Months ago, Micmac closed its New York office. And while tons of companies have adopted a wait-and-see approach to how and when they re-enter the office, Rachel's put a stake in the ground and said it's not happening until there's a vaccine. She's instead launched a new plan called Micmac Anywhere, which basically says that her employees can live and work anywhere they want in the U.S., that Micmac will recruit talent from anywhere in the U.S., and that existing staff will keep their current salary, even if they move somewhere cheaper. I caught up with Rachel to find out the pros and cons of that plan. Yeah, so week of March 9th was when COVID became real in the U.S. and absolutely in New York. Our office is based in Soho. And funny enough, we moved in January 1. So we were in a brand new fancy office, totally decked out in Micmac branding and everything you can imagine a fast-growing startup looks like. My head of finance has a different disposition than me and he's more conservative, which is why he's my head of finance. And he pulled me aside and he goes, this is really real and we are probably gonna have to shut down the office. And it was a shocking thing when he said that to me, but I understood the sentiment. Fast forward by the next day, you were starting to see different forms of closure across New York and the US in general. My whole attitude is let's not dwell on these decisions because a startup's greatest asset is time. And the quicker I can make this decision, the better it is for the company. And so what I decided on March 10th is that we were going to be shutting down the office temporarily. I have the same data points that my employees do. So I don't actually know when things are gonna get better. And in fact, I think they're gonna get worse before they get better. And as a result, I need everyone to take their computers home. My employees live in the five boroughs of New York City, Connecticut, New Jersey, Long Island. And I told everyone, like, grab your monitors, 
like hug everyone goodbye. Hopefully we're back in a month or so and I'll pay for your Uber. It's obviously been way longer than a month. When did you decide on the rather drastic steps that you took that would become, you know, Micmac Anywhere as a program? When was that like the light bulb moment? Yeah, so what I told employees was that at the end of March, I will give them another update. And at the end of March, my update was the soonest we're reopening the office is June 1. And then as we started to approach June 1, like let's just call it mid-May, it became abundantly clear to me that we're not going back June 1. And so I decided to get ahead of it again. And I made an announcement that the soonest we're returning back to the office is Labor Day. And then all of a sudden, you know, come June and early July, you started to see cases spike again all around the U.S. And you started to see reports come out, even from South Korea, that once kids returned back to schools, it spiked again. And I was reading all these reports that were coming out in Korea and China, how people were handling returning to office. And it was like an 18-step program. And it seemed completely miserable to me. And the kicker was Micmac just closed a major round of funding and part of the diligence process was my new major investors requested an in-person meeting because we had only met each other via Zoom. I mean, we had spent a hundred hours on Zoom together, so I feel like these people are my brothers now, but they had not met me in real life and they were writing me a very large check. And so they requested if we could meet in a neutral space. So they're based in Boston, I'm here in New York, and they rented a hotel conference room in Greenwich, Connecticut. And myself and my head of finance, Greg, went. We all wore masks and we brought our hand sanitizers. And we were in this huge conference room that probably could fit 30 people, but there's just five of us, like more than six feet apart for a six hour work session. And it was so uncomfortable. And that was the moment that it all crystallized for me. My company has grown over 70% since the week of March 9th. We're in e-commerce. We help grocery liquor brands like it's accelerated our business. We've proven that we can work in the cloud, which I believe is a privilege. Not everyone can do that. My girlfriend, for example, is in the service industry. Like she doesn't have that luxury. I said to myself, how is this all going to play out? Like, do I really believe that we're ever going to be returning to the office in the foreseeable future? And man, am I spending so much money on our Soho rent right now that I would much rather reallocate to invest in my employees and in their professional development. And I also said to myself, I'm one of the only companies that's growing in New York right now, and commercial real estate in New York over the next year, it's gonna be the hardest time of their lives. And I feel like I'm gonna have a litany of options once I'm ready to get some form of a physical presence again. And all of that, meaning the external data points, my own individual experience of an in-person meeting wearing masks, the proof points that my business is growing remotely led me to make the decision that I believe it's a privilege and a luxury to be able to work for a company that allows you to have as much autonomy over your own time and your own location. And that that's the new value exchange with employees. It's not the ping pong table. It's not the free snacks in the office. It's saying be the person who designs your happiness. Have as much control over your own life and redefine what it means to have work-life balance. Because the reality is like the average commute in the US is two hours every day. With this new time back, what do you wanna do with it? What do you want your life to look like? Spend more time with your family. And it was funny in the decision-making process, what I felt was 
my mid-level and senior employees, they'll be very excited about this. The employees that I was most concerned about were my 20-something employees. Because when you're 20-something and you move to New York City, like you're starting your life. Work is your social life. Like it was for me. And my company is, is kind of like cult-like-ish. Like everyone drinks and works out together and it's really beautiful. And so I was most concerned about them and I still am. Even if their friends' offices are reopening, I'm pretty confident they're gonna close really quickly once we see a spike again in September and October in New York. I noticed the same thing as well. If you're 30-something or 40-something, this is kind of somewhat of a breeze if you have a stable job. But if you're 22, you want that after-work beer with your friends. You want to meet your, you know, your social circle. You might want to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend who's a coworker. You know, it's all these things are just not going to happen now if you're not going to the office. So that was the context for why you decided to set up a program that addressed all of this. I'd love to go through all the different points of what Micmac Anywhere is. So the first one, of course, in this blog post that you wrote all about this is that employees can live and work wherever they want in the U.S. indefinitely. Yeah. So, you know, my office is in Manhattan. New York City is a very expensive place to live. As someone who lives in Manhattan, it's not an enjoyable experience to spend your entire day in your little box. And if my employees don't want to stay in their little box, and they wanna move to the Catskills or Nashville or back to their parents in Montana, why not? That was the first major decision. There's a lot to that aspect because the big change with remote work is going from synchronous work to asynchronous work. And so you have to have a lot of policies in place in terms of what is the expectation in communication turnaround? What hours does the entire company have to overlap? and what channels are appropriate for which types of conversations. What does a meeting now mean? But once you figure all of that out and everyone respects it, go live wherever you want, be happy. And you know, if you want a different cost of living, you know, go for it. Yeah, and part of a way to address the asynchronous thing is you said that you know, the company's gonna operate on East Coast time. For now, yeah. Because to be honest, we don't have everything figured out that I just said. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, for now, everyone that was an employee based in the New York office, if they decide to move to another time zone, fine, but you got to work East Coast hours. That being said, I do have employees who in their title, it's Micmac Midwest or Micmac West Coast. Those people work those hours. The natural result of people being able to work anywhere is that, you know, you've said you're going to be able to recruit anywhere. So, you know, you've opened up your potential skills and talent pool to literally all of the states in the U.S., which I imagine would allow you to find just so many more diverse people and more, you know, different kind of skills. You know, you could look in places where you would have never looked before, you know, Maine, Louisiana, you know, the Badlands. I mean, somebody could be living somewhere and have a skill that, you know, they weren't in Brooklyn or, you know, Williamsburg, so you wouldn't have hired them before. Yeah. You know, we were growing like crazy. You know, our revenue's grown 70% since March 9th, but my team size has doubled. And then by the end of the year, we'll have tripled. And the reality is like the New York talent pool in enterprise software, which is what we are, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Most people look like me, they have my background. We have a pretty diverse makeup of the company, but to be honest, except at the leadership level, the leadership team is half female, half men, but everyone is white, and that's not something I'm proud of. And I wanna be able to recruit from Miami, from Atlanta, from Detroit, from Philadelphia, and this allows us to do that. 
you've also noted the fact that you're going to have a hub at some point, an office or whatever you want to call it, that it won't be mandatory for people to go there every day, obviously, because they're working wherever they want to work. But you still think it is important to, you know, have a piece of real estate that people could congregate in at some point. Yeah. I mean, for people who know me, I'm freaking obsessed with real estate. And every single time we have an office in New York, I find a way to get a big Micmac sign in the building. Like, I really do believe in having a physical presence. That being said, COVID has changed work forever in my mind. And I believe that physical office spaces are going to become more like event spaces, where it's really designed almost like a collaborative theater, where employees can come there to like kick off big projects, welcome new hires, you know, do a cool client meeting, and then, you know, all company events that might happen a few times a year. But the reality is like the office as we all used to know it is just a place for distraction. It is not a place to do meaningful deep work. To do meaningful deep work, you need quiet space. And if you ever surveyed anyone and you asked them when you need to get a big project done, what do you do? They either tell you they're doing it late at night on the weekends or they come to the office early before anyone shows up. So, I mean, that's why the workforce is more productive than ever right now because they're home with way fewer distractions. Yeah. Are you going to take this and play it by ear rather? Because this is like a grand projet kind of thing. Nobody knows how this is going to turn out, the remote work experiment. I mean, all signs, as you just said, do point that we might be more productive. We might be happier. We might have less distractions. Some of us might have more distractions with family and you know kids. But will you kind of check in every month and say, right, how is this working? How can we tweak this model? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we made this huge announcement to the company in mid-July, and we're now moving into what we call Q3 offsites. So every quarter we do offsites, and even in COVID world, I've been still doing them. And a huge part of, or the, really the theme of our Q3 offsites is defining what is Micmac's remote culture, because I believe it starts there. And one of the things that I've learned over the last six months during COVID is that culture is not your office branding. Culture is not your team happy hours. Culture is not the swag that you're giving employees. Culture is really how about how you treat your employees and how they treat everyone else. It's about the actions that people take. And in a remote world, actions really matter. Like for example, the majority of the communication with our colleagues is in written form, right? Like via Slack. So what does our tone mean in this new world? What does our response rate mean in this new world? How do you actually work on a collaborative document together? Ship a project? What does the interview process need to look like? And what does it mean to do great work? Because one of the things that's become abundantly clear to me in the remote work world is you don't value as much the fact that someone might be like really funny or really charismatic. Because in the remote world, it's like, do you do great work? Meaning, is your work smart? And do you deliver it on time? And it really changes the nature of like how you screen people in the interview process. So the first step is us as a collective organization defining our remote culture. Every three months, like I'm gonna be checking in. The reality is we check in way more than that because employees do weekly touch bases with their manager. They do monthly touch bases with their department leaders. I do monthly check-ins with 
everyone in the company. I spend so much of my time just doing 15 minute calls or Zooms with everyone in my company. I think it's really important. You know, they were at right now at 60 people. People come because they want to work for a founder led company. And I need to make sure that they still feel connected to me. And that's it for this week. Make sure to check out our latest print edition of the magazine, The Design Issue, all about how to make it work as a creative entrepreneur. And by now, you know, we've also launched our new Fresh Fund, a grant scheme for black business founders under the age of 25 to start or supercharge a company with a bit of extra cash. Head to couriermedia.co for more details. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Weekly is back again next week. We'll see you then.